Hello, fellow Rebel Capitals. Hope you're well. I'm here with my good buddy, Larry Lepard, and we are going to have a friendly debate because there's a few things that Larry and I definitely see uh, from a philosophical standpoint. I think we're probably twins, Larry. <laughs> Very close. <laughs> <laughs> you have to forgive me. I've still got this cold. But uh, as far as interest rates and the dollar and maybe even uh, sound money, I think we've got some different views. So I invited you on uh, not to have a winner or a loser or anything like that, but really to go over these ideas to get people thinking. That's, that's, that's my whole objective whenever I debate someone like you or Lynn or someone like that. It's just sure. really to get people thinking. I don't see any downside to that, Larry. So that's hopefully we can achieve that objective today. I think so, for sure. <laughs> All right. So the f let's go over kind of your worldview, how you see uh, 2024 playing out and then what that means for the dollar, what that means likely for the entire curve. We'll talk about the front end, the long end, maybe what the Fed's going to do. And then we'll just kind of riff on that. Yeah, sure. So, so first of all, I would say everything I'm saying is not investment advice and there are no certainties in this world, right? It's all just kind of probabilities. Um, my view is uh, we had an enormous, I mean, let's, let's, I deal in kind of multi-year timeframes. I'm not a trader. I'm not looking at the next six months as much. And I think sometimes George and I have differences that are more based on what's likely to happen sooner versus later. Yeah. And so I tend, to, I tend to really take a longer term perspective on this stuff because my timeframe is three to five years on these investments. But saying that as a background, I think we had a, I think we kind of had a peak, um, uh, peak deflation in 2020, March of 2020, you know, long bond, the 10 year hit five, you know, 50 basis points, um, you know, 17 trillion of negative debt in Europe. Um, I mean, at 40 years of deflationary events and, you know, the list is long, you know, the China price, uh, shale oil, all kinds of things, uh, labor productivity, et cetera, et cetera. Okay. I think that all changed. And obviously we, we went from a world that was deflationary the world was extremely inflationary based on the Cerveza crisis and the government's aggressive response to that, both monetarily and fiscally. And arguably, the fiscal was more important than the monetary. And George and I agree on that. Um, okay, and so we we quickly ramped CPI up to nine percent, and and you know it wasn't transitory when it went through three or four; it went to nine. Um, but they slammed on the monetary brakes. They brought it all back under control to a degree. Uh, we're now printing in the threes and probably headed lower because the OER. It's going to factor in over the next year or two. And so in my view, the Fed has now, in their mind, I think, achieved their objective. I don't think they really achieved their objective in terms of taming inflation, but I think they do. They believe it. And I think yeah. the market believes it. I think, George, you would agree with me that, you know, the, the five by five swaps and guys like Rosenberg and really smart guys all kind of believe in a soft landing and that, you know, the Fed's going to, going to do a good job here. They've landed the plane. They're going, to, they're going to bring, they've brought inflation down. It'll get back down to their target in the next year or two. And, you know, they've managed to skip a recession and everything's going to be good. I don't believe that. <laughs> I think it's I think that's highly unlikely. I think um, we actually are probably technically in a recession, but because of the way they do the numbers, it may not be showing yet. And um, and I think that we're at the cusp of, of a bigger problem, which is the, the, the debt markets. And I think we're going to discuss that a lot. Um, and that that really comes down to the issue that uh, we ran an almost one point seven trillion dollar deficit this past year. Um, you know, in a, in a full employment economy with 2.8% GDP growth. So, uh, and that's kind of unheard of. That's, that's a big number for a healthy economy. And it's only likely to get worse if the economy slows. And I think there's beginning to be evidence that it is slowing. 
Um, but, you know, the, and the reason it, it's taken a while for it to slow, and, and this goes to a chart that's in my quarterly, which we could re reference. I can pull that up. Would you want me to go to that right now, Larry? Yeah, I want you to go to that now. Page 16. Which, which page? 16. Page 16. Okay. Yeah, you'll see. Um, take a look at this. That's federal U.S. federal government spending um, that occurred, um, you know, from the 70s to present. Notice the jump that we took um, in 2020. You know, that yeah. was COVID. And notice how it hasn't come back down. I mean, that was a crisis. I get it. They had to spend a lot of money. But you would think that, OK, crisis is over. We'll go back to the baseline. Well, no, we have not gone back to the baseline. It was 6.1 last year. We're running higher than that this year. So to me, that's why the quote unquote recession has been somewhat delayed. Um, the government has made up the balance. And um, my my assumption based on that is that ultimately what's going to happen here is um, you know the bond market is going to be where the problem occurs. And I think George and I slightly disagree on how it's going to unfold. But my belief is that over time, even though interest rates have come down and will probably continue to come down based on the Fed jawboning and and the the move, the shift to what I believe will ultimately be QE. We know they've said QT is going away. Lori Logan hinted at that. Uh, I think ultimately they'll have to get to QE. That'll probably be later in the year. Um, and in the interim, I think they've got to bring the, the, the you know, the short rate down, the federal funds rate down. And what's signaling that, and I, I rely a lot on a guy, I respect Jeff Gunlock, who says really the Fed funds rate kind of tracks the two-year rate. And if you look at the two-year yeah. rate, it, it's come down very sharply in the past six months. So, so I think the Fed, in, in, and it was really kind of stunning to me because as early as December 1, Powell said something along the lines of, you know, there's, it's, too, it's premature to be talking about rate cuts. And then 13 days later, you know, he has a press conference where, you know, the dot plot shows three, you know, uh, three cuts is kind of a consensus within the Fed board. And also that um, he said, you know, to Lori, he said to um, uh, the woman from Yahoo Finance, you know, we're going to have to start cutting before we get to the 2 percent um, inflation rate. You know, and, and so to me, that was the beginning of the pivot. And I think that that pivot will continue. And while I, I don't disagree, as, as George says, that, that rates could continue to come down for some time, both in the long and the short end, I don't think that condition will last because I think the Fed is going to be forced ultimately back into monetizing the deficits, which I think are really the core of the problem. So I'll stop there and let, let George react to that. Yeah, so I totally agree with the hard landing. And I, I'd also dovetail on your point and... Uh, uh, just have people go through a quick thought experiment. If you're Jerome Powell, you want to be remembered as Art, as uh, Paul Volcker and not Arthur Burns. And if you think about the three options here, you've got no landings, soft landing, and then hard landing. Okay, well, everyone's assuming that Jerome Powell wants a no landing, but I think that's inaccurate. Because if if you think about it, that's the only option where he risks being Arthur Burns. Because if we have a no landing, we were talking about this before we went live, Larry, uh, we would likely see the long end of the curve start going up. Well, that's inflation and growth expectations. So that means that there's a higher risk of inflation reaccelerating, which puts him in the Arthur Burns camp when it Absolutely. comes to history. So if you think about it through that lens, a hard landing, and he looks like a winner. Correct. Hard landing, and he goes down in history as the guy that had the balls to break the back of inflation, just like Paul Volcker. So uh, now, it, you know, maybe he's completely ignoring that, but I find that hard to believe when you've got a guy that's worth $100 million, he's whatever, 70 years old, and right now, at that point in your life, you're thinking about legacy. You're thinking about how you're going to be remembered over the next 500 years. 
and how your grandkids are going to remember you and their kids and so on and so forth. And so, uh, again, that no landing risks a reacceleration. It basically risks Arthur Burns or the hard landing and you're in the Paul Volcker camp. Right. And, and, and I, I hear you and I don't doubt that that's what he's thinking. I think the problem is he got a tap on the shoulder and uh, from from Janet and perhaps even from Biden. And, um, you know, he, he it's it's interesting because I think, you know, um, Luke Roman framed this very well. It's not really a choice between being Paul Volcker and being Arthur Burns. It's a choice between being Arthur Burns and being Benjamin Strong. Uh, and Benjamin Strong was the was the Fed chairman in the in the 20s and 30s who was too slow to, to loosen monetary conditions which led to some of the depth and length of the Great Depression. And so, um, you know, my view is, as you, as you and I both know, the Fed has three mandates, right? Full employment, um, price control, and, and the unstated third mandate is, is functioning financial markets, you know, continually functioning healthy financial markets. And, and we know the third mandate exists because we saw in many, many cases where there were unfunctioning markets, they would step in and do whatever it takes. And I think I cite as the supreme, two supreme examples of that. One is March of 2020, you know, when the, when the bond market almost went no bid. And the other is, is the repo blowout in 2019 and, you know, where, they, where the original Powell pivot. And so I guess the point I would make is you're correct, George, and that that would be what you and I would do because, you know, we're intelligent guys and, and we would care about our legacy. Um, I think at the end of the day, he's a lawyer and he's a little bit of a political animal. And I think that he's concerned that if he goes that route, it gets really disorderly. I mean, we've seen some things happen. We've seen the Lori Logan statements about financial conditions. There's a lot of, there are a lot of signs and I'm not, I'm, I'm by no means a good financial plumber. I mean, you know, I, I look at Lynn and I look at Luke and I look at, you know, Joseph Wang and others to, to give me more clues on what's going on. But the SOFR blowout and some of the other things would indicate to me that they saw some stuff that scared them. And that's why they took the steps they took in December. I could be wrong about that, but that's no, but I think we're saying the same thing because for, for Jerome Powell to pivot uh, and, and risk, Right. It has to be real, real bad. That's, that's my I point. That's right. Yeah, I totally agree with you. Okay, then we are saying the same thing. I thought you were saying ultimately he would not pivot. And, <laughs> no, 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 no. Yeah. No, I think he's definitely going to pivot, but that yeah. just shows you how, how bad it actually is under the hood. Well, that's correct. And and it and it really goes back to the basic math. I mean, if if you know, if you don't mind, if you refer back to my my yeah. quarter again, and this is going to be up on my Twitter feed in a few hours after we finish this call. Go back to which page? Page, page six, please. Okay. Um, this is a great chart by, and I know your business partners with it, Lynn Alden. And you know, this is really to me, this is the core of the issue. You can see here, you know, the total debt, total U.S. debt, all all factors, and underneath it is the base money, which the Fed has some control over. Admittedly, the multiplier in the banks and so on and so forth. We all know about that. But but the point is, as the blue line gets too far away from the orange line. They have to increase the orange line or else something breaks. Right. And that's that's what we've seen historically. The first case of it was 08. The second case of it was 2019 and then COVID. Um, and, and you know, we're waiting for the, the next evidence, you know, the next piece of it. But it's coming. Right. It's it's definitely. Yeah. coming. So I think this gives us a good opportunity to, to disagree a little bit, okay. because al although you can't dispute Lynn's chart, I, I would say, does it matter? <laughs> so let's just assume that the Fed's balance sheet goes from, or and more specifically, the reserves. I think that's, that's what right. is most important. But let's say bank reserves go from 
uh, 40 billion in 2007 to let's just say they're 3 trillion right now. Uh, mm-hmm. And they went up to north of four. Does that matter? And if so, why? Right. It, meaning, does it matter to the dollar? Does it matter for inflation? Does it even matter for M2? And um, as we know, we saw this huge increase in the Fed's balance sheet during QE1, 2, and 3, and it didn't really result in any type of significant consumer price inflation. I think we both agree that the inflation rate is a lot higher than the government admits to. But still, we didn't see like 1970s or 1940s type of inflation, even though the Fed's balance sheet just completely blew out. And then if you look at a chart of the DXY, it went, it went straight up. Yeah, no, I know. I know it was, it was positive. Yeah. The, the, yeah. The, the, the chart, I mean, if we look at, uh, you know, let's yeah. say the start of QE, we we're right around 81, uh, just using this as a proxy, not necessarily for consumer prices in the U.S., but against other foreign currencies. And we've gone straight to 103, and that's what the Fed taking their balance sheet from 40 billion up to, uh, or excuse me, from 800 billion overall balance sheet uh, up to what? Almost nine trillion. Now, and, yeah, it was three eight after two thousand eight. Yeah, no, you're and right. And then was- also too, if we look at the the chart that you pointed out uh, from Gunlock, there. Let me go back to that. That's uh, was sixteen, I think. That's where we saw the the deficits just completely blow out, which we both agree. That, look, look, they're going to get worse. I mean, right. it just it is what it is. And uh, Josh, remind me when we get done to um, send Larry a chart of government spending to GDP. Because what you'll see, Larry, is uh, the percentage of government spending to GDP goes up every single time we have a World War One, a World War II, uh, a GFC, uh, uh, a coronavirus, you know, something like that. Yeah. And, and, it, and it comes down slightly, but it never goes back down to where it was prior to the crisis. I have part of that. I have that from 64 going forward. Go to page oh, I've got it all the way back to like the 1800s. Oh, I'd love to see that. But go look at page 17 and you'll see it. And we're at the highest level ever. What what I don't have here is World War II, where I think it actually was a bit higher. If you go uh, to page, page yeah, government spending. Yeah. Now, now, I want to point out, Larry, this is federal. Right. What I do is I look at state and local. Uh, and state and local right now, we're, we're getting close to 50%. Oh, wow. Yeah. 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 So, but let me address something. You made a great point. We had a lot of QE and, and, and I, by the way, I got caught in this. I lost a lot of money. I looked like a total idiot from 2008. <laughs> no, I did. I mean, I was there. it's easy to do from 2008 to 2013. I was one of those guys who said, oh, this QE, we're going to have hyperinflation. You know, yeah, they're, yeah. They're printing money like crazy. What I missed was the transmission mechanism, which is the banks, as you know, and the lending. What I also missed is that all that printing actually went into assets and yeah. it did that. It did that in large part because you know we had the China price going on and a lot of other positive things, shale oil coming on, et cetera. And there just wasn't any traditional "quote unquote" inflation pressure in that time frame. So, so the money got created. It's just that the money didn't chase goods and services. The money chased assets, and that's why, of course, we had the housing boom and and you know so on and so forth, right? I mean, or I mean the the dot-com boom, and when it, it created what, in my view, is kind of the everything bubble, you know, that, that we're now in the, you know, in the process of living through the bursting of the everything bubble. I mean, to me, the greatest financial crimes of the last 20 years are, are, are ZERP. I mean, the notion that the cost of capital is zero, you know, and the Fed was willing to do that long beyond the time at which the crisis occurred. I mean, I get it. In 2008, you know, the ATMs aren't going to work. Okay, fine. We need 800 billion. Let's do ZERP. 
but they continued ZERP until 2016, you know, and um, that you just can't have a capitalist system working when you have money is free. You know, it just, it distorts everything. And we are still, in my opinion, living with the, uh, the after effect of that distortion and trying to figure out what it means. It's tricky as shit. And, you know, very smart people can completely disagree on whether we're going to have inflation or not. And, and both, be partially right. I mean, it's, it's unclear, right? <laughs> yeah. I, I, where I, what I wrestle with a lot in the, in the whole ZERP era, uh, era is if we would have had free market rates, would they have been different? Ah, interesting. Because if you look at the long end, it was, it was very, very low, which would, to me, you know, if you're looking at Irving Fisher growth, inflation expectations, you know, if you've got the, I don't know where it was, but let's just say the 10 year treasury was trading around, uh, let's just say 2%, something like that. Yeah. You take out the fed would the, it probably would have been zero, but yeah. would it have been, you know, 25 basis points, 50 basis points? Something like, like, I don't know. I obviously you can't prove a counterfactual, right? But I don't know that rates would have been 5%. Very possible. I mean, certainly the economy, economy was stuck. I'll give you that. Yeah, there's no doubt. Yeah. So that that's what I wrestle with there. Now, going back to your earlier point about uh the you know the 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 financial economy getting the bulk of the the, the bank lending, which right. is how I would phrase it. I, I completely agree. I don't think there's any disputing that. But what I would argue is that it wasn't really due to the expansion of the Fed's balance sheet. Huh. Um, the, the, the Fed could have taken it up to nine, five, three trillion. It, it that didn't really matter. What mattered was the bailouts. And I would go all the way back to long-term capital management. Uh, because if, if I put myself in a position of a bank, and um, I, I'm coming at this from the standpoint of uh, they have an infinite balance sheet. They, they create their own liquidity. They create their own assets. They create their own liabilities. They don't need the Fed to settle all these things. Um, and I've got an option right now. Now it's 2010, let's say, or 2011. Right. I can either lend into the real economy to create goods and services, but I take a substantial amount of risk there. Or I can lend into Wall Street, and I know that they're all going to get bailed out if right. we have an issue. I can lend to the S&P 500 for them to buy back their shares. And I know that my downside is effectively zero because I'm lending to the guys that are going to get bailed out. And therefore the bank's balance sheets expand. They, they issue loans, but for the average Joe and Jane, their interest rate is effectively infinity because they they can't get a loan. As an example, Larry, I retired in 2012 and I started buying real estate in, uh, in Kansas city and whatnot, these little, uh, single family rental properties. And I was buying them cash, 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 cash. So I had like 15, 20 of these things that I had purchased in that first year. And I had them all rented out. I had them all remodeled, rented out. And this wasn't in the ghetto or anything. This was in really, really good neighborhoods in Lee Summit and and, um, in other areas, Blue Springs in um, on the Missouri side of Kansas City. And I went to the bank, not not even to get like a cash out refi, just to get a line of credit against these things. And I had like a 780 credit score. I had all this money in the bank. I had all these properties that I owned a hundred percent and they were all cash. I had them all rented out at like a thousand, 1100 a month. And the banks just told me to pound sand. Wow. They they, they said, no, no. I was trying to get a line of credit, Larry, for 40% LTV, 40% on all this equity. And they told me to jump off a cliff. Yeah, meanwhile, well, meanwhile, the, the Black Rocks and the Blackstones and all, yeah. you know, they're sitting there borrowing money right and left at yeah. 10 basis points 
or, right. or whatever it was, right? Yeah. So th- that's that's kind of an anecdotal story that I would use to kind of back that up. That when the, the the problem with the Fed there wasn't the size of their balance sheet, is that they created the moral hazard by bailing out the system to begin with. That was the real issue. I completely agree with you. That's a great point. I I, I was not aware of that that anecdote and that that issue taking place and. And it was because they were looking in the rearview mirror. I mean, they had just gotten yeah. burnt terribly on real estate loans. And so they weren't going there anymore, right? Yeah, and they're looking at me and you're like, why should I lend you money? You can go bust. Right. When I could just take this loan and I could lend it to Larry Fink and he yeah. can't go bust because what we've seen over the last 15 years proves yeah. that, that that at the end of the day, whether it's the Fed or the government or whatever, they're wow. they're they're going to bail out Larry Fink. They're not going to bail well, out George Gammon. And then it even probably got worse for you because at least when you were starting, you probably weren't competing with Larry Fink to buy those houses. But probably, <laughs> yeah. probably five, six, seven, eight years later, you were in there bidding on those houses, and Fink was right beside you bidding with you, and he had a hell of a lot lower cost of capital. I don't know, I don't know when that bid came in, but it did come in at some point, right? Right around 2014, 15. Yeah. Right. Yeah, yeah. So they, I saw because I was going to the tax. I was buying these tax foreclosures, Larry, where, where the county would foreclose on people for not paying their property taxes. Right. And the first one that I went to, I bought six properties. This was August of 2012, and it was right. me and about ten guys. Yeah. And fast forward two years, and there's literally 500 people there. Oh, is that right? Wow. Yeah. And- and and how many of them were Wall Street financial players? A big per- percentage, right? I would I well yeah it was their representatives. Sure, fair enough. But yeah, and 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 again, you couldn't compete with them because their cost of capital was close to zero, and yours was your own equity. Yeah, that. It's, yeah, exactly. Yeah, it's the system is horribly broken, as we both know. And uh, yeah, so anyway, the the main point there is I, I don't know that that was you know the Fed would have taken their balance sheet to one trillion. I, I think it. you would have had the exact same thing. Another thought experiment that I always use is I say, okay, let's say we would have had QE, but they would not have bailed out long-term capital management. Okay. Would the stock market have gone up? And, and I'm like, uh, I don't know. Another thing too, let me show you a chart, Larry, is I always reference this. This is the amount of reserves in the system. And this is something that I, I don't know why more people don't talk about. So um, you know that this just, so this is not the Fed's balance sheet. This is just bank reserves, right. just bank reserves, which most people, you know, financial experts would call the the quote unquote liquidity. Right. Okay. Well, if we go back here to 2007, we're, we're, or 2008, really 40 billion with a B, but you can go back to 1980 and it's the exact same. Yeah. It's 40 billion. In yeah. fact, you can even go back to the late 1940s or excuse me, the late uh, 1950s here. And it's around 20 billion. Right. So my, my point is, and by the way, I don't know what M2 was back here in 1960. I would assume that it would have been around maybe 300 billion or something like that. I know in 1980, it was 1.5 trillion and 2007, it was 7.5 trillion. So if you've got M2 going from, let's say 300 billion to 7.5 trillion and the bank reserves are basically the same, what that tells me is the banks don't use bank reserves. Right. Plain and simple. So if you add another two trillion in bank reserves, it it, it doesn't do anything because the banks aren't using them to begin with. I think what really matters there, and where again the Fed comes in and central planners, is risk, perceived risk. If there, if you have a, a a static level of perceived risk, I don't think it matters what the Fed does. 
because the banks are going to do what they're going to do. They're going to produce their own liquidity. Um, they're not even going to use the Fed's balance sheet. But if risk goes up, then I think the Fed's uh, balance sheet does matter. Like BTFP would be a great example of that. You know, the whole system would have blown up if they would have if they would not have come out with BTFP. Correct. And therefore, uh, that 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 did matter. But again, I don't know that it mattered from a standpoint of the size of the Fed's balance sheet. More so, just because it was a, a bailout, and therefore the risk went from way up here back down to there. So the so the banks would start using their own balance sheets and creating their own liquidity again. I think what you're describing eloquently, and in a way I hadn't just uh, looked at before because I wasn't familiar with those bank deposit numbers, uh, reserve numbers, is just how how pervasive and you know um, important the Fed put is, right? I mean, the, yeah. there's basically the, the financial system basically knows it's got a Fed put, full stop, yep. and uh, you know they can they can do whatever they want to do, and. Uh, I thought the BTFP was very fascinating because if you remember the time frame clearly, you know, Janet Yellen flip-flopped. I mean, there were a couple of times there where she was saying they might have to guarantee the entire $17 trillion deposit base. Yeah. I mean, that, that would be a big deal, right? I mean, <laughs> and they, they were deeply concerned, you know, when that whole thing went down. And I and by the way, I don't think they're totally out of the woods on that particular issue. No, no, no. I was looking for a chart. I think I've got it here. Uh Larry of the B. Go ahead and keep talking, and yeah, I think I've got the BTS. There's a guy, on, there's a great guy on Twitter, Triple Net Investor, who portrays all these buildings, all these CRE buildings that the regional banks hold the paper on. And I mean, there are many, many, many significant, you know, fifty to hundred million dollar, two hundred million dollar real estate assets throughout this country that are selling at twenty five and thirty cents on, you know, the high price. Right. And the paper on those banks is held, or paper on those properties is held by the bank. And, yeah. you know, in fact, that's in my in my report as well. Um, and so this is another area where we may slightly disagree because mm-hmm. I, I totally agree with you that the banks are screwed and commercial real estate is going to blow up. I don't think we're in inning nine or we've got past this uh, regional banking crisis. I think we're just in inning five or six and this is going to play right. out probably in 2023. Um, I mean, the BTFP is skyrocketing, and I don't think you can contribute all of that to just that arbitrage play that people talk about. Yeah, but um, I think that uh, where was I going with that? The the the, the well, keep going, then I'll I'll circle back. Yeah, here. go to page twenty-two. You'll just you'll just see the size of the uh, of the unmarked losses on these on these regional banks. Um, oh yeah, that's where I was going with it, Larry. Uh, sorry, is um, I think that. If the banking system is in trouble, that means that money's going to get tight, regardless of interest rates. And right. if money gets tight, that means liquidity gets tight. And right. if liquidity gets tight, we have like oh, what Snyder would call deflationary money. You have the velocity slow down, right? right? And in that environment, assuming we have this extension of the banking crisis, I don't know how we have a, a reacceleration in consumer price inflation because at the end of the day, it's the banks creating the money. Now you could argue that the government will come in with deficit spending that will be monetized by the Fed. But again, it, it, their their balance sheet could go to 20 trillion. And if the banks aren't lending, the banks aren't lending. Um, and and I, I don't know. So so that may be something we we might want to riff on as well. Yeah, we should. I mean, it's, it's a very good point. And you caused me to question my assumptions because we had a t- conversation about this pre or pre getting on the live stream. I mean, it's a very good point. I mean, I guess where I would slightly differ is I do believe that the pain will get to be significant enough that we'll go back to stimmies and UBI and 
YCC and all of that stuff. I, I mean, agree. You know, if you look at if you look at I was on a call yesterday with Rosenberg, who's very, very smart. And he made the point that, hey, you know, we, there's, I don't see the driver for the inflation. You know, I just don't see it uh, without monetary creation. And, and, he, and he didn't think that we were going to have another bout of monetary creation. And that this goes back to Lynn's original chart, which is I don't see how we get away without having another bout of monetary creation. I mean, I think I think, you know, things start to break. And by definition, the Fed is the put. And so by definition, whether it's the BTFP or who knows what they're going to call it, they'll create something new. And, you know, we will have, quote unquote, stimmies and we will have, you know, checks sent out to people. We will have UBI, um, et cetera, et cetera. And and um, also we'll have, you know, a substitution effect so that whether the economy goes up or down, you know, is let's leave that set that aside for a moment. The biggest thing I'm playing with because I'm managing a fund is where are these big pools of assets going to go? There's seven, yeah. you know, 700 trillion of assets in the world. Some of it's in bonds, some of it's in stocks. You know, if you look at the two categories that I focus on, gold, gold mining companies and Bitcoin, you know, there's probably in tradable gold, there's 13 trillion dollars of gold in the world. But a lot of it's around women's necks in India and, and in vaults that don't move. You know, central bank gold, tradable gold is about three trillion dollars. You know, all the gold, all the professional gold mining companies in the world probably have a 300 billion dollar market cap. I mean, Tavi Costa can tell you the exact number. And, you know, the Bitcoin market cap is $800 billion. So, you know, what I see is a substitution effect of as this monetary irresponsibility that is almost inevitably going to happen starts to unfold, people are going to say, you know, I don't need to hold these bonds. And I, I, I get how a slowing economy, you know, I think you believe interest rates could come down. And I, I don't disagree that in the short run they could. I think in the longer run, people understand that the, the monetary system has created money roughly at 7% a year for you know 50 years. It's going to continue to do that. And as it does, you're just not getting paid for taking the risk in bonds. And so you've got to be you know, in, in these other securities, and whether it be gold, silver, you know, gold miners, or Bitcoin, or, or even equities to a degree, because they'll reprice in whatever the new, the new monetary you know, medium is, if, assuming we go to a new monetary medium. But you know, I mean, to me, the, the big sucker at the table is the bond market. And and I think the world is kind of starting to figure that out. I think we're on the cusp of figuring that out. Yeah. So where I've got a different view is probably the, the, the main components of demand on the treasury curve. Mm -hmm. So it's absolutely true that you got some people like uh, retirees or something like that, pension funds maybe, that are buying treasuries just to get that yield for the next 10 years. Right. Or the next 30 years or something like that. And I totally agree. They're going to get wrecked. Uh, I, I don't think we have a, a 1970s, but I agree with Lynn on how it'll likely be the 1940s, where that additional money supply creation will come as a result of government deficit spending and, and, and the Fed with M2. Um, and I think even more so price controls and other things that we saw. Uh, CBDC. I think that's another thing that is going to drive inflation moving forward. I don't know that it's, it's just... Uh, Strictly the, um, uh, the 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 deficits, yeah. but uh, anyway, keep going, and I'll probably interrupt you in thirty no, seconds. No, no, I mean, let, me, let, me, uh, let me go back to my um, my report just for a second, and, um, oh, yeah, because there are a couple of other points I'd like to make that I think are I think are important for the readers to focus on. The top one is the three inflationary waves of the seventies. I mean, um, you know, inflation is going to, in my opinion, wax and wane, and um, it always does. It always does, right? And uh, 
you know, look, I mean, I recall in the 2019-18 timeframe, the Fed officials saying we've got a real problem. We're not meeting our inflation target. Inflation zero and we want to be at two. Well, you know, they solved that. Um, you know, we went to nine. Uh, we've come back down to three. Are we going to two or, or one or zero? Possible. I mean, Gunlock and others point to the OER changes and, and you know, the fact that we may come in lower and, and that's all fine. But I think that I think there are other factors in the background that are taking place, um, you know, and part of the reason the deflation was present for so long, there were a lot of favorable things going on. We had, you know, China enter the world with a China price in 2000. We had all the all the development of the shale oil from the United States in, in the kind of 2000 to 2023 timeframe. And um, we had a lot of productivity and we had a growth and we had a lot of technology growth. And I'm not saying any of those things is reversed forever but they have certainly slowed down. And as we were talking before we got on the call here, you know, the thing that I see that I think is going to really push inflation and, you know, you see it is, you see it is, is wages and, and the, you know, the, the, the wage market today. Um, I, I was speaking yesterday to Peter Bachfar after the spaces we were all on and he, he cited five or six instances, really good instances of where people are not getting 1%. I mean, the Fed wants to return us to 2% inflation. Okay. I mean, you know, pilots are getting 12%. There's a pilot shortage right now. They're getting 10, 12, 15% a year pay bumps. You know, um, Peter cited an example where a guy at, you know, the Walmart uh, warehouse managers are getting 9% a year pay bumps. I mean, you know, 9, 12, 15, even five or six, those are a long ways away from 2%. And so I think we've unleashed this inflationary demon. And I think that the odds of Powell ultimately being Arthur Burns are reasonably high because I don't think we put the demon back in the cage until we truly do have a Volcker, until we truly do have a positive real interest rate for a long period of time, long enough to break the inflationary trends. That See, we're that depends to. on bank lending, Larry. Yeah, I agree with because that. Because I, I, I just don't, I mean, assuming that bank lending kept up with the, the, the rate of uh, whatever nominal GDP, whatever metric you want to use, or has kept going up and up and up. I, I totally agree. You're going to have the wage price spiral. If, if oil goes to 200, you know, that's going to be a huge input. It's just, if you don't have the bank lending to match up with that, at a certain point, you, you burn through the margins of the airline, right? Because, because yeah. the airline isn't able to raise their prices because people have less money to spend. The economy is going into the gutter. And therefore, you know, you, you got those margins shrinking at a certain point. They can't shrink anymore before the entity goes bust. And all those people that got pay raises are now unemployed. It's a great point. It's an absolutely great point. And I don't disagree with it. All I'm suggesting is that as each of the things you just described starts to unfold, the government gets more activist in keeping things alive and starts right. bailing out that airline or sending stimmies to people so they can't afford to fly or, you know, whatever it might be. You follow me? I mean, yeah, I, I just so what I do there is I try to think through, OK, let's just say the government did come in with these uh, stimulus checks. Let, let's just say that they just did the exact same thing they did in 2020. Right. Um, how much of that nine percent CPI? And again, we know that's cooked, but just using that as a proxy, how much of that nine percent was due to uh, the government spending? which I would argue it wasn't really the M2, but it's more so the velocity of money changing. That's actually what I was, I forgot to talk about because you're taking, even if there's no uh, QE or either there's no monetization by the fed, you're still Janet Yellen is taking money out of savings and she's turning it into checking. Yes, and I therefore, 
you know, so therefore you've got that velocity increasing. But my point is how much of that 9% was a result of the demand side and how much was a result of the supply side? Because it was obviously both. It but, was if, both. but if we say it was 50-50, then now all of a sudden, okay, we've got 4.5%, assuming that the supply side stays the same, assuming that the government does, did, or will in the future do exactly what they did in 2020. And although that is higher than where it is today, I don't know that that takes us to that next wave, which is what we saw in the 1940s and the 1970s. Now, I think we'll get to that next wave, but, but I don't know that in and of itself gets, gets us there. Hey, guys, I want to remind you to check out Rebel Capitalist Pro. This is the incredible online investment forum that I have with investment experts, Lynn Alden and Chris McIntosh. It includes professionals such as Patrick Serezna from Macro Voices. He specializes in options. Jason Hartman, real estate. And Brent Johnson with Macro Economics. If you want to build wealth and thrive in this world of out-of-control central banks and big governments, Rebel Capitalist Pro is the resource you need. So check it out today at georgegammon.com forward slash pro. That's georgegammon.com forward slash pro. We'll see you inside with the fellow rebel capitalists that are taking their investing to the next level. I agree with you. And it may not be higher. It may not be the same way as it was in the 70s. And, and I, I don't disagree with what you're saying. Um, I, I would make, I would make, you know, and, and obviously some of it was supply side driven. I would make the, the broader statement though, and I, I don't think Rosenberg did a good job of refuting me on this when we spoke about it on Spaces yesterday. We have really underinvested in stuff, you know, capex. I mean, Tavi's got some great charts on this. I mean, general capex into commodities and just general manufacturing um, has not kept pace in the last five, 10, 15 years. With what it was doing before and so and some of these things are very long lag time items i mean there's some really great charts showing the shortages coming in copper and silver as examples and you know to start a new copper mine is a 10-year enterprise and so you know i and, and and i think the same is somewhat true with oil um you know you can't just turn on the taps really quickly um you can turn them on to some degree but the point i guess i'm trying to make is if we've underinvested in capex and, um, you know, we've increased interest rates here. And that's the other thing, this increase in interest rates. I mean, it was one thing when rates were low, you know, at least somebody thinking about expanding capacity could say, well, I can finance this pretty cheaply. Maybe I should do it. Do you know what I mean? Well, with rates where they are now, I mean, higher, definitely at the margin. Eh, you know, I've got to create, you know, I've got to clear a hurdle rate, you know, the risk-free rates, 4%. I got to add another three or four on top of that. This thing's got a pencil out at 12. Eh, I'm not going to do it. So, you know, I think there's an argument to be made that we've underinvested in CapEx and that that demand piece is going to continue to be a problem. I can't prove it. I mean, I'm not an economist and I can't prove it. But, but, I, but I do know that, you know, there was a long period of time. I mean, if you look at, well, you know, I'm an investment manager and I look at cyclical charts. I think one of the great cyclical charts out there, I don't have it in my thing, but it's easy for anybody to find. It's go look at the S&P um, ratio to the commodities ratio, um, oh, yeah, commodity, yeah. Yeah, GSCI, right? And I mean, S&P is incredibly highly valued right now. Commodities are incredibly lowly valued right now. And 
And, and those things tend to mean revert over time. And so my point, I guess, would be that I think we are entering a super cycle, you know, commodity bull market. I really do. And I, I think the reason for that is the underinvestment that's taken place in the last five or 10 years. So I think that, you know, part of what's going to drive the 70s like inflation, and maybe not to the same level, but certainly I, I guess the point I would make, and I think you can agree with me on this, is that we're just not going back to the way things were. We're not going back to 2%, 0% inflation. We're just not. You know, I mean, the, the, the wage earners are demanding more. And, and frankly, they're getting it because, you know, the boomers are retiring and there aren't as many people in the labor force. And, um, you know, so I, I, I think we, we live in an inflationary world now as a general statement. So I disagree with that. But I do agree with your overall view that throughout the 2020, I think 2020 is, is going to be an inflationary decade. Right. I, I think that there's going to be these waves. But I think where I see things slightly different is with the backdrop of the monetary system and the banks becoming more and more fragile, therefore yeah. lending a lot less. And I completely agree with what you're saying with a long-term commodity super cycle. I talk about that on this channel all the time. All right. But uh, again, it's kind of robbing Peter to pay Paul. I, I don't know. Yes, you're going to have to pay $6 a gallon for gas, but that means you can't buy that shirt from Walmart. Yeah. And, and, and therefore, that means Walmart isn't going to be able to hire as many people. The unemployment rate goes up and yeah. you, 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 you've got problems there that brings the inflation rate back down. So you have these waves. That, uh, and I think it all. But to your point, where we go through one of these disinflationary waves that may actually turn into deflation, yeah. then the government comes in, does something whether it's uh, you know CBDCs so they can inject money directly into people's back pockets through UBI, and that there then the risk goes back up to where it was, or excuse me, the risk comes back down to where it was. Therefore, bank liquidity, they start lending again, and then you've got the lending on top of the components that you're talking about, which takes us to that next wave of I'm, consumer price inflation. I think that they're also going to combine that with price controls, Larry. Very much and, so, yeah. Yeah, just like we did in the 1940s and the 1970s. And so uh, the way I see it is you had price controls, I believe, 45 and 46. They took yeah. those price controls off. And in 47, we had the CPI go up to 19%. But right. but in by uh, 49, the CPI was at negative three. Right. So well, it goes from 19 all the way down to negative three, and then it goes back up. So I think that... You know, if we look back, if we're sitting at 2030 and we look back, we're we're probably, I mean, both groups are going to be right. The deflationists are going to be right. And the inflationists are also going to be right. It's just a, a matter of, of what time frame you're looking at. <laughs> I think that's absolutely right. I mean, it's they've, they've created a monetary system that's out of control. They're bouncing off the guardrails of inflation and deflation. And I have long said that, I mean, you know, if you look at how big this bubble was, it compares really to the 1929 bubble. A lot of the a lot of the conditions today are actually more similar to the 20s than they are to the 70s. And one would argue that if you're unwinding a, a bubble of the size that we've got, and as you point out, the banks aren't willing to lend and can't lend, you know, unless they have severe, you know, massive assistance. I mean, yeah, we we should really have a deflationary world. And one could argue, one could further argue that that no matter how aggressive the Fed gets, it doesn't matter. They're going to get run over by the, you know, as you point out, you know, the, the airline, yeah, they're going to pay the higher wages to the pilot, but guess what? No one's going to be able to afford to fly and the airline's going to go BK. You know, yeah. I mean, I mean, I don't disagree. I mean, we could have an extremely severe deflation here. And, and I think about that a lot in the context of my investments, because 
you know, the biggest investment we have in our fund, obviously, is gold. And I look at how gold did in the 30s, and it was fixed in price. But the gold stocks went up 10, 10x during the, the decade of the 30s. And in real purchasing power, gold maintained its purchasing power because the price of everything else went down 90%. Right, so, right. so, you know, I, I have a, a grandparent who bought a house in Birmingham, Michigan for $7,000 that in 1928 was a $55,000 house, right? And, and, you know, and the depression occurred and he had saved up his money and, and they had, you know, they had a smaller house and he sold the smaller house and turned around. And, and so he got a bargain, you know, because he, he basically was able to buy something for cents on the dollar. On the other grandparent side, I had a, a grandparent in Ann Arbor who was running a business who, you know, took the false uh, um, inputs from the Fed in the 20s. And he doubled the size of his business in 27 because business was booming, right? And he used debt to do it, right? And he spent the entire 30s begging the bank not to foreclose on him so he didn't lose his business. And when that grandmother dried, died as she was going through her death tremor, she kept saying, they don't have any debt. They don't have any debt. They don't have any debt. I mean, the, the, the 1930s was, you know, was, a, was an existential you know, near-death experience for that set of grandparents. So so, yeah, I mean, this is what the Fed has created. They've created this out of control system that swings between, you know, massive inflation and potentially massive deflation. And it makes it extremely tough for regular people to just try to, to save and, you know, keep their feet solidly on the ground. And, you know, the only advice I give people is just, you know, be very, very wary of leverage in a, in a system that's this volatile. There's a great chart on the Internet that Mermican, uh, my friend Dan Oliver at Mermican Capital did that shows how volatile prices were in the in the hyperinflation of the 1920s in a system that's as broken as this is you're right i think we're at times at times the inflationists are going to look incredibly right in the next 10 years and at times the deflationists are going to look incredibly right in the next 10 years and it's going to be really hard to keep your feet on the ground and you know it's it's what richard russell used to say i mean in a in a bear market everybody loses money the winner is whoever loses the least the least yeah <laughs> It's it's yeah. gonna be it's gonna be tough. I mean, sadly, it's gonna be tough, but it is what it is. And I think we can both agree that the government is gonna try and do everything they can to smooth it out. And uh, hopefully there'll be, you know, we, we will we will make it through it. And and on the other side of it, I do think on the other side of it, what's what we're looking at is eventually, you know, the Fed. I mean, I noticed you're wearing a t-shirt that says end the Fed. I mean, there's there's no more important thing in my view. You know, I look at all the battles that are going on in the world today. To me, that's the most important battle is we've got to get this monetary system into a sounder set of hands because the way it's constructed right now, uh, it just makes it impossible for all of us to to plan and to, to build a good economy. Yeah, it's just I where I would see things different there is I don't think it is has to do with the Fed's balance sheet. Okay, fair enough. It's 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 just the the moral hazard by them being there to begin with, because if we look at the balance sheet, you know, you can I've actually got the Fed's balance sheet even going back to the when it started, yeah, and uh, you see the increase of the balance sheet, but it wasn't really due to reserves other than the the nineteen forties a bit. It was uh, the increase in the size of their balance sheet was just simply them creating currency, and right. they weren't creating currency to buy stuff. Uh, as you probably know, just the mechanics behind it is when the banks lend and they lend right. and lend and lend and lend, and that's going to be more demand for currency. Therefore, they go to the Fed and the Fed sends them uh, more hard green pieces of paper. And then right. that increases the size of the the, the Fed's balance sheet. It, it, it's not the Fed buying things. It's just simply them providing the the banks with uh, with green pieces of paper that are on demand for customers. Well, yeah, right. As you pointed out, it's the put and it's it's what allowed, you know, it's what made the banks lend to to the big names and not to you. 
And, uh, and that's, that's how the system is broken. Yeah. I think what, and, and a lot of people accuse me of kind of, Oh, well, George, you're nitpicking and you're kind of splitting hairs and whatnot, but, but why that's important is because when you're looking at what the fed is doing with their balance sheet, you, you've got to ask yourself, does that impact the risk or perceived risk? Yes. If it doesn't impact the perceived risk at that time, it's not going to matter from a mechanical standpoint because the Fed's balance sheet doesn't matter because the banks don't need reserves because they, they just create their own reserves. They create their own liabilities. They create their own assets and they don't need the Fed's balance sheet to settle. So in a time of crisis like GFC, then yes, absolutely. The, the Fed matters in what their balance sheet is during BTFP, another example. But if we're just going through 2014, 15, 16, 17, 18, or if we're just going through 2022 or 2023, um, it, they're, what they're doing with their balance sheet, it doesn't matter at all. Yeah, but let me be devil's advocate with you on that. I mean, you know, how would you, how would you then explain what happened in 2019? You know, they're trying to shrink their balance sheet and you know a rivet popped you know what i mean i mean it so i mean i to say there's their balance sheet has no impact i mean i i I, look i'm not an expert enough on the monetary plumbing to know okay i I mean it's it's not my area of expertise but i do know that they were shrinking their balance sheet and you know the repo market popped right i mean it broke yeah i I think it's similar to like a native american rain dance uh, where, where, where I, I'm not trying to be an asshole, but no, you know, I, if, 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 you know, they do the dance and it rains, then all the, the Indians or whatever, assume that the, the dance is what did it. And, and the reason I, but let me back that up with some, some, some data. So I don't sound like a jerk. Um, uh, so if we go back to that chart of reserves yeah. um, and we come to the conclusion that definitely prior to 2007, the banks didn't use reserves. They just flat out did not use them and and repo and and anything. So uh, I I fast forward to 2019 and I say, okay, well, the banks aren't even using reserves. How can a lack of reserves cause the repo rate to go up to 10%? Uh, Now you could say, well, George, it it changed because of the regulations, because of Basel three or what is it? SLR, I believe. Yeah, yeah, it, it changed because of these regulations. I, where I struggle with that is that from all the way up until uh, 2020, in fact, we had a 10% reserve requirement. You know, mm-hmm. the, that, that was a quote-unquote regulation that was supposed yeah. to constrain the banks and, and make them safer. Okay, well, again, we go from $1.5 trillion to $7.5 trillion from 1980 to 2007 with $40 billion in reserves. So where, where's your 10% reserve requirement there? The yeah. bottom line is the banks just gave the Fed the middle finger and said, yeah. you can go on and have fun with your stupid reserve requirement, but we're just going to create these sweep accounts, right. which is what they did, just to get around the regulation. Because yeah. if we want to lend, if we see a profit-making opportunity, we're going to take it. Yeah. it, regardless of Basel three or any of these crazy things. And if we yeah. see a profit opportunity because reverse, or excuse me, because of repo rates are going up to 10%, boom, we're going to take it regardless of how many uh, bank reserves are on the aggregate balance sheet. So my view of that is you had a spike in risk, a spike in risk where the bank said, I don't care how many bank reserves we have, we're not lending. We're not lending because there's some entity out there, whether it was Credit Suisse or who knows, you know, Deutsche Bank or something like that. We'll never know at the end of the day, but something in the system broke. And uh, they're like, uh, you know, we can provide the liquidity, but we're not going to. Because the risk reward doesn't make sense unless it's at ten percent, 
And then the Fed came in with the, the, whatever they did, you know, basically a guarantee. And then they said, okay, let's take a deep breath. If the Fed is there, if the Fed acknowledges the problem now, we'll go ahead and create the liquidity needed. And it didn't have anything to do with the Fed's balance sheet, but the Fed coming in and just stating basically that they see the problem and they're going to be there to backstop it. Go ahead and create the liquidity regardless of how many bank reserves are actually in the system. That's my view of how it played out. And that, and that makes sense. That's logical. I mean, I, I can, and it's very possible that that's the case. I, I understand your point about the bank reserves, not really being the key. Um, it's yeah, the they just, they, they're, they're, it's not even debatable that they were not, they played no role prior to 2007. That's right. just reserves, looking at the feds. Right. Yeah. That, yeah that no, you can see that. I, I get that. Yeah. I mean, the point is that it's the put that really tells you what's going on. Yeah. And it's just psychological. It's yeah. just the Wizard of Oz that, that <laughs> right. they're just there. Okay, we're, we're going to do something. You know, it's a lot like what you're saying in 2020, Larry, when they came in and they bought uh, corporate debt. Remember that? Yeah. Uh, because well. there, there was no liquidity in that market or something like that. They only bought like, it was just some minuscule amount. Suddenly the market. Yeah. Yeah. No, that's right. No, that's, yeah. I mean, and, and, and you look at, you know, you look at Silicon Valley Bank failing and you look at how big that was. You look at the run on those banks. And when they got in there and when they created the BTFP and I mean, it, the whole thing calmed down incredibly quickly, you know? And so, I mean, what it does tell you is that the put has a lot of, has a lot of value. And it uh, does, but it also tells you that it's always, they're always behind the curve. Well, that's true too. Yeah, that's, that's true. Right. I mean, they, they never come out with a put prior to the crisis. No, no they, <laughs> <laughs> they always brag about how many tools they have, but they yeah. never seem to have enough tools at the end well, of the day. They're always creating the, the new tools. They have to create a new one. They give it a new name and, and there's no doubt they will create a new one and give it a new name. But, you know, it, at the end of the day, um, we can see that we live, in my opinion, in a system that's broken and, and, and out of control. And, uh, and that's, that makes it very difficult for, for those of us who are investors. I, I agree there. But see, this is where it gets interesting, because yeah. I think that equals a higher dollar because the system's broken. Yeah. And that likely puts a bit, although I totally agree that, you know, we're fast forward throughout the 2020s and we're probably not at a, at a high on the right. 10 year treasury yield as we speak right now. You know, right. I, I totally agree there, but I do not think the dollar is going to crash. Now it may crash against goods and services in the U S absolutely. And it could crash substantially, you know, looking at my view of kind of the 1940s or whatnot, that's the dollar crashing. Quite yeah. literally, you know, when you see CPI going up to 19%. But I don't know that it's going to crash against other currencies. That I, I, I struggle with, regardless of what the deficits are doing yeah. or the Fed. So let's talk about that. And uh, then let's talk about how, um, you know, you see the long end of the curve maybe getting out of control due to this uh, debt or deficit kind of doom loop. And then uh, I'll tell you from a mechanical standpoint how I see things a bit different. Okay, fair enough. Um so I don't do the dollar very much. I mean, to me, the dollar index is really just one piece of fiat garbage against a bunch of other pieces of fiat garbage. Yeah, right, so, right. I mean, I, you know, um, Brent's a good friend, and I think the milkshake theory is brilliant. And I agree with it in many respects. But I, 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 but I, I sorry to cut you off, Larry, but I do think that you have to look at the DXY if we're trying to predict what demand is going to be like for treasuries. I do. I agree with that. And I think, I mean, notably, you could see, I mean, so, so they started the pivot, and this is in the letter that will be posted. They started the pivot in September, October. And what you can see is that, you know, the, the they brought down the 10-year, they brought down, um, and they brought down the dollar, you know, equivalently. And as, as Luke points out so so eloquently, I mean, 
you know, they have they have a choice. You know, do they want to save the bond market? Or they want to save the dollar. And I think ultimately they will always pick the bond market over the dollar. And so the dollar has has slid a good bit. And I think I think it's likely my opinion is actually it's likely it's going to continue to slide. Um, and, and maybe, you know, I, I, what I look at, I look at the dollar cross. I mean, the, the three prices I really look at the most are the dollar versus oil, the dollar versus gold and the dollar versus Bitcoin. Because to me, those other three assets are I mean, oil is the thing that everybody needs to run the economy. Um, gold is the longest lived, you know, sound money alternative. And Bitcoin is the emerging, you know, an emerging sound money alternative. And so to me, if I want to know how the dollar is doing, I want to know how it's doing in the price of those three things. And, and you know, the behavior of those against the dollar has, has made total sense, right? I mean, we saw 2020 occur, we saw the response, and all three of those things took off, you know, and, uh, and now we've seen, you know, them, them tightening down on the monetary, you know, uh, um, you know, creation mechanism, so to speak, as a result of the rise in interest rates. And, you know, the, the, you know, the price of all three have, have, have been under control. Um, but but I think that what we're looking at is will ultimately um, they will be forced to step on the monetary gas again because of the chart that I showed earlier, the Lynn chart. And, you know, whether it's in the bank reserves or however it gets in there. Um, I mean, you know, one thing is that we haven't really talked about is the Fed is just creating, literally creating and printing money now because the Fed loses money every year. And it's gotten up to a couple hundred billion dollars a year. I mean, just off of their balance sheet. I mean, they're paying. You know they're 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 lending short term and 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 they've lost a lot of money on the long bonds that they hold and they have to um, eat that loss and they used to send money to the treasury they don't so there's one way that they're monetizing things but let me continue along I mean I think ultimately you know whether the inflation becomes you know very high or just medium high I, I you know I don't know I, you know it, it I don't think anybody really does but um, I, I think that the odds are good that the government will continue to and, and be forced into a situation. I mean, what we see going on is, you know, and this is the most interesting thing to me, the U.S. government is starting to look like a third world country. I mean, we're starting to get to the point where, you know, the interest expense, you know, is eating up just too large a position of, you know, the, the tax revenue. And unless they either cut expenses or increase taxes, there appear to be no appetite for either of those two things. Um, you know, they're, they're going to have a problem where they're going to have to literally print the money to pay the interest expense. But, but, and, but you're assuming that there's no demand for treasuries. Well, in that environment, not no demand, but you're assuming that demand goes down. And where I have a different view is let's assume that everything that you're saying is right as far as what the Fed will do and the government. Right. And the, I, I totally agree with that. But in, in, if, if, if they are doing that, then, then they're doing it because we're living in a deflationary environment where, where velocity of money globally is slowing down. Correct. And in that case, that would be dollar bullish. And in that case, that's, uh, you know, ironically enough, uh, that is putting a demand for treasuries. So the fact that they have to do that right. tells you that we're in an environment that overall is risk off especially outside of the United States. And in that environment, people or huge entities, pools of money are going to gravitate toward the safest asset, which is whether we like it or not, the treasuries. I hear you. And I think, I think, but I think the view on the treasuries are changing. I think they're actually starting to trade more like a risk on asset. And I think, you know, I mean, I don't disagree with what you've described at all, George, in a six month to one year time frame. But I think in a longer term time frame, unless we see and, and, I, and it's a big caveat, unless we see a cut in expenses or and or a rise in taxes, um, I don't see how they, you know, they, they make they make these treasuries money good. I mean, I think I think the people 
I mean, yes, I get why people are buying a treasury. If, if we're in a deflationary environment, you know, where prices are literally going down and we've got deflation everywhere, you know, I mean, there's no doubt that the U.S. government is going to pay out on those treasuries in nominal terms. There's just no doubt about that. And if you really believe we're going to have deflation, you know, a four or five percent, well, a four percent yield on a 10 year or a 20 year or 30 year, that's a good bet. Right. But but I think what the market is saying, what I believe the market is saying, and I look at the other assets that we've talked about earlier, is that that can't last. I mean, yes, we can get a big deflationary impulse and we may be going into one, but we know what the policy response will be. I mean, Bernanke outlined it in his helicopter speech in 2002. I mean, the most irresponsible speech ever made by, by an investment, you know, by a, a central banker, right? And, and so the policy response will be, they will print until their eyes bleed. I mean, they, they will do whatever it takes. I mean, they, they will, they will, Larry, they, they will. But I don't know that it matters. Let me tell you why. Okay. I think what you're doing is you're looking at this, rightfully so, from American-centric view. But the treasury market is the global bond market right now. Right. You know, we got GDP, global GDP, at let's say 120 trillion. 70% of those transactions are settled in dollars as of right, right now. And I would right. totally agree that that's declining, but it's still, it's it big. is what it is, yeah. right? So I spend most of my time in Colombia. Okay. And we're on the Colombian peso right here. And from, let's say, uh, well, let's just go back to when this all went really, really haywire based on your charts in 2020. Yeah. The, the peso was trading right around, right, you know, right off the top of my head, let's say 3,200, maybe 3,500, something like that to one. Yeah. Yep. Uh, now we fast forward to today where the peso, I haven't looked at it lately, but let's say it's trading at uh, 4,200. Something wow. like that. Huh. So what has happened is uh, that it is true that you've had consumer price inflation in the United States. Yeah. And if you are an American whose expenses are denominated in dollars, you have lost purchasing power. Yeah. But if you're a Colombian that purchased treasuries, your purchasing power has increased significantly, yeah. even I'll relative play. to the local rate of inflation. And I'll that's play. why when I take trips to Turkey, as an example, you go to the local coffee shop and they open up the cash register and it's nothing but dollars. Right. There's no Turkish lira in there. Yeah. It's, it's all just it's all just dollars. Yeah. So I think we've got to look at demand from a standpoint of global demand yeah. for dollars or for, for U.S. treasuries, which is a dollar based asset, a dollar equivalent, basically. And if you look at it through the, the global lens, look. The people in Colombia or Turkey or Argentina or whatever it is, they could care less about what the inflation rate is in the United States. Yeah. They could absolutely care less yeah. as long as that dollar is maintaining its value relative to local goods and services. Yeah. That's the only thing they care about. Yeah. And the only way that you could you could get that dollar really, really going down substantially is if you you somehow... Uh, were to increase the deficits. Now that gets into really technical stuff that I, I'd like to talk about, but I'll kind of leave it at that. I, I think that we have to understand that global demand for treasuries, uh, the the uh, incentive structure, I guess, is is substantially different. And even outside the United States, if you're not, you know, some person in Colombia that's maintaining your purchasing power, 
uh, you're a massive hedge fund or one of these banks in the euro dollar system, which is you're just trying to hedge out your book, you yeah. know, and you're just trying to hedge out all your long bets. Or like my buddies in um, uh, St. Barks, I've, I've got a lot of buddies down there that are that used to be big hedge fund managers and whatnot. They're playing with billions of dollars back and forth. Look, they're buying the TLT, not because they like treasuries long term, but they're, they're just saying, hey, look, we got an inverted curve. The Fed's going to drop rates. And I'm going to get some serious bang on my buck with, uh, you know, going out the long end of the curve. So there are all of these components that go into treasury demand outside of just that saver in the United States that wants to maintain their purchasing power. In fact, I would argue that's a minority. I think you're probably right. I mean, and you're right. I do look at it very much from a U.S. point of view and a U.S. centric point of view as compared to the alternatives, you know, the sound money alternatives. So. So I hear your point. I mean, I, I think that this, this, again, goes a little bit back to, you know, your time frame, my time frame. I mean, we are clearly in a deflationary impulse right now. And, uh, you know, buyers of 10-year treasuries could be very smart today. I mean, we'll know in a year or two. Um, I, it doesn't, it wouldn't surprise me at all to see the 10-year trade down to, to three or two and a half even. Um, but, I, but I, you know, I would ask, Let's revisit it in three or four or five years, um, because I think that, um, you know, the U.S. is going to do what it has always done in the past, which is, you know, um, provide the monetary accommodation necessary to keep the system running. And right, that but I think the, the question there is, how would that impact demand for treasuries outside the U.S.? Right. And it, it, it may, it, it may not. Would. Yeah, it may not. I mean, I, I would say to you, though, I think. In Turkey, from what I've heard, and, and perhaps in Colombia, I'm not familiar with Colombia, you know, that, the, the, you know, people are saving in dollars. I get it. And particularly because, you know, they can spend them more easily, but they're probably also saving in gold. I mean, I, you know, as I understand it um, from the people I know who've been to Turkey, there's, you know, they, there's a lot of talk about buying gold as the way to defend oneself. Yeah, most banks have a service there where they allow you to transfer your, um, any, uh, your savings account actually into gold. Is that right? Okay, so they make yeah, it easier, yeah. easier for yeah, you. The gal that uh, was my tour guide there—that's what she does. Yeah. How about Colombia? Is it the same situation or not? No, no, they they don't. But they have multi currency accounts here. But they uh, don't. I, I haven't seen anything where they give you that option for a spread to take. You know, say you got a hundred thousand dollars in the bank to just turn it into the, the a gold equivalent. Oh, interesting. Yeah. Right. <laughs> so. So, I mean, I consider that to be your other alternative, you know, to the dollar in a, in a world of a bunch of currencies, all of which are, you know, pieces of paper that are losing value, uh, you know, kind of on a consistent basis year over year. So, um, you know, and then to me, that's, that's actually one of the remarkable things about what's going on right now. I mean, gold is kind of bouncing. As on, I was talking about this on another podcast recently. Gold is like within inches of an all-time high. It's an all-time high in every currency in the world except the dollar. Yeah, and, yeah. you know, you don't hear anything about it. And the sentiment's pretty terrible. And, uh, you know, I think at some point um, it's going to make it through this 2070 range. And, you know, I can't see where it doesn't score up to 2,500 or 3,000 relatively quickly. Um, because I think that, you know, I think right now what the market is coming to grips with and, and will have to come to grips with is the notion that the soft landing isn't going to work. You know, that the, there's there's not a soft landing coming here. And I know you agree with me on that, you know, that, that um the, the, you know, the, the problems that we've got, you know, there's a lag between the tightening of the monetary system and the time when it affects the economy. And, and we've just about run out of that lag from what I can see. Yeah. Yeah. No, we totally agree on that. I think, yeah. I guess the question that I would pose to you 
because your argument, we, we basically saw it play out in from 2020 to 2023. Right. Uh, we, we saw the deficits blow up uh, as we saw, as I said on the Twitter spaces yesterday, the national debt went from 22 trillion to 33. That's probably right. maybe even 34 right, right now over the last uh, three or four years. So if there has ever, ever, ever been an argument uh, to be bearish the United States dollar or to be bearish bonds, we just saw it play out right. over the last uh, three or four years. So my question to you would be, why did we see, why do we still uh, see so much demand for treasuries in light of that? And why during that time frame from 2019 to today, did the dollar go up? Um, I think the dollar went up based on um, just general dollar liquidity. And, um, you know, I, to be honest with you, George, I can't answer it. I, 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 like I say, I don't really do the dollar very much. So I, 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 but I think not, that's a component of the bonds. I don't want to put you on the spot there, yeah, uh, Larry, I, but, but that, that's my, you know, when we go back and forth on Twitter, that's my, my real point is I'm not saying that these deficits and debt ends well. Right. Uh, I, I, I'm not saying that, <laughs> we, that. that we continue this forever and, and just ride right. off into the sunset printing money. And that yeah. just solves all of our problems. I, I'm just saying that, uh, it, we can't just say that, well, you know, uh, 22 trillion didn't, or 33 trillion doesn't matter, but oh my gosh, 35 trillion, holy cow, when we hit that, yeah. then that's no, going to be I, the line I in the it. sand. I, 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 I just say that, yes, this will be a problem, but we have to understand what type of catalyst we would, we would need to see in order for it to be a problem. And then my main point, Larry, is... I even if I don't really think the debt matters that much, unfortunately, right. uh, as in, in terms of being able to issue debt for the United States, at, at least it I don't think it's going to in the next uh, three or four years. But that doesn't mean that we get a free lunch. Okay. Right. Because in my view, the problem isn't necessarily the debt or servicing the debt or the interest on the debt. Okay. It's that the government is spending to begin with. Right. right? And the, the example I always use is a heroin addict. Right. right. So let's say you've got some guy that's a heroin addict and you give him a credit card and he runs that credit card up to its hundred thousand dollar limit, just injecting more and more heroin into his body, destroying his mind, destroy, destroying himself physically and destroying his soul. Right. And then all of a sudden we came come in and give him a brand new credit card with a zero limit. Did, did, right. OK, now he doesn't have a debt problem. But he still has his main problem, which is he's a heroin addict. In fact, we just made it worse because now if you take the debt down to, let's say, let's say we took the debt down to 30 percent GDP in the United States. That's a huge that's an even bigger problem, because now the government will have an excuse to take it right back up to 70 percent. And it's the government spending that distorts the economy. It's the government spending that disproportionately impacts the poor and middle class negatively. That's the real problem. It isn't necessarily just servicing the debt. I agree with you, but we're we're talking. I mean, the two sides of the same coin, right? Because the, the spending leads to the debt, right? I mean, it's 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 the spending that leads to the deficits, and I don't disagree. The government is acting like a heroin addict. I mean, there's there's no doubt about it. And um, yeah, I mean, I, I think we're, I think we're saying the same thing, just with slightly different terminology. You know? We are. It's just people get fixated on the debt being a problem. Oh my gosh! You know, in five years or three years, the interest payment is going to be a hundred percent of tax receipts. Right. Yeah. So oh, what? Okay. Yeah. Uh, yeah. Look. Look at Japan. 
Yeah. You know, um, okay, look look at what we've done over the past uh, three years. Uh, d- does that change anything? I don't like it, but I, I don't know that that really impacts the bond market. Yeah, and I don't know that that impacts the dollar. Might even make it do the opposite, like we've seen in the last three years. Yeah, very possibly. I mean, I think I think it does. Um, I don't know. I, I think I think though. I mean, if you look at the, the last time we had debt to GDP like we do today, you know, one hundred thirty percent. You know. Um, eventually the bond market kind of revolts and, um, you know, they had to do YCC yield curve control, as you know, post-World War II. Um, and that led to the inflationary years of the you know late forties and fifties that you alluded to. And, and so I, I think, you know, and I think you're starting to see that. I mean, you had a 30 year auction that didn't do very well a month or two ago. And, you know, I think what led to this pivot more recently was, um, the fact that the 10 year had gone from kind of the four level to the five level very quickly. I mean, that kind of reminded me very much of the of the um, the guilt crisis in the UK in September of, of 2022, um, and so I I think that I think the debt ultimately does matter, George, in my view, um, and 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 they care about it. They you know they I mean we know it mattered in March of 2020 when the debt market kind of went no bid and and Powell basically came in and this you know we're saying kind of the same thing but you know he came in with the ultimate put where he he more or less you know. Um, behave like Mario Draghi and said, whatever it is going to take. And as you recall, I mean, they were buying corporate bonds. They were buying everything under the sun. They did TAF. They did, you know, they had seven programs where they were just going absolutely nuts. That's how scared they were about the debt market imploding and about people not being comfortable holding the debt. So, you know, it might take getting to that extreme for that kind of behavior to occur again. And that's not behaving, you know, that's not what's going on right now. And I agree with you. I mean, 38 billion of debt or trillion of debt, 34, whatever. It's, it's not a big difference, but, but at some point, 